winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 29th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. This episode is a conversation between Vary Killen of Iona and myself. I don't. Vary and I met at our office at Erstana on the Isle of Iona at the start of this week, halfway through May of 2019. Our conversation goes over lots of ground. It turns out that with yet another participant, that Vary and I were both born in the same hospital in Greenock. Where Vary grew up in Greenock, I grew up in Dunoon, across the Firth of Clyde from each other. Part of growing up in that world of the 70s and 80s was the presence of the American naval base at the Holy Loch, where nuclear submarines would slink through the waters of the Clyde and then slip deeper under the waves and patrol the North Atlantic. This casts a shadow over part of your youthful existence, and we talk about that, including Vary and her sister's duck and cover plan in the event of a nuclear attack. I'm particularly chuffed that we get a chance to talk about the work of the Riches of Iona, whose metal and design work have a profound and ever-growing importance. As a few of you have mentioned to me, I seem to be ploughing a sort of occasional inquiry into the sense of place and what this means in a kind of abstract way. Towards the end of this episode, we start to address this in relation to Iona and the draw it has on people. In this episode as well, I go back over some thoughts you might have heard before about Gaelic language and the alphabet. Normally I cut my rabbiting out of the podcasts as much as possible, but I felt this was worth mentioning again in the overall context of the episode and the ideas we explore. This episode has been sponsored by Treshnish and Hound Cottages. Treshnish and Hound Cottages are located on a farm near Calgary in the northwest of Mull and are open all year round. They offer a selection of eight eco-friendly self-catering cottages sleeping from two to six. You can find more about them and book on www.treshnish.co.uk That's T-R-E-S-H-N-I-S-H dot co.uk And they can be found on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Treshnish. And if you're interested in photos of the Northern Lights, I would say that Caroline puts up the best photos in the Northern Lights I've ever seen. And they're all taken from here in the northwest of Mull. Uh, it's really quite something. Also, the whole What We Do in the Winter project has been sponsored in kind by the Island Bakery. And everyone who takes part in it gets a complimentary box of lemon melts. Mm, lemon melts. Lemony and melting. The website, whatwedointhewinter.com, has links to the topics covered in our chat. Enough waffle from me. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with some more information. And now, here's Vary Killen. Who are you? That's an interesting question. As a Gaelic learner, I couldn't understand why the Gaelic for who are you and where are you from... Mm -hmm was the same, more or less. So, so um, where are you from is Ko uh, Yes. But Ko is is who, isn't it, in Gaelic? Ko is a very simple yeah. way of saying who you. Yeah, who, who you. you. Yeah. Yeah. What I found in Gaelic when you would ask that question, it wasn't actually who, who are you. It's who are you from? Yeah. Who are you from? So it's um, not... You catch a Yeah, yeah, totally. where, where do you live? Yeah. Ko yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's where are you from, but it's not actually, it's who are you from? So I'm Vary Killen, mm-hmm. and I am from Greenock originally, born and brought up in Greenock, but I am really from the Iona McDonald's. Ah, so, right, okay. So 
my maternal grandfather was an Iona man born and bred uh-huh. and was raised here. Um, uh-huh. And that's my connection. That's my familial connection to the yeah. island. That's your call. That's my call. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the In Gaelic, when you were talking, when you would say who you were, the surnames are a relatively recent addition to the Gaelic world. And you would give your your uh, patronymic, like yes. in the classic Russian literature, yes. you'd get this patronymic that goes way back. Yes. And, you'd, and that's, you know, that's your bunachus, your rootedness. Mm-hmm. That's where you come from. Mm-hmm. I have a thing about Gaelic that uh, I've said it before, but that it's from the ground upwards. Mm-hmm. The words, each letter has a tree mm-hmm. that goes with it. And so the words are sprouting out of your mouth like mm-hmm. leaves mm-hmm. and you're just... And it, I was at Duncan McGilp's funeral and I watched as his coffin was lowered into the ground and it suddenly struck me, as well as being part of the language, you become part of the land. You become mm-hmm. part of the geological record. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's magic. Mm-hmm. No, it's very beautiful and it's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, um, so. And it's the full circle, isn't it? So yeah. the way you describe the language is each, le- each letter is yeah. a tree and it grows out and flourishes. Yeah, exactly. And then... Um, you, you you then return to the ground and it's the cycle. It's yeah. the life cycle and um yeah, it's a it's a beautiful metaphor. And 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 interestingly, I think once maybe the patronymic passed. Yeah. So so my mum was Jessie MacDonald, so she was Jessie's son of Donald. Yes. She wasn't Nick, Nick Donald. Donald, um, yeah. And more often than not because her grandfather had owned the post office and the Argyle Hotel in Iona. Oh, right. She was Jesse Post Office. Yes, yes. So a place in the mix rather than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got job in the mix as yeah, well, like exactly. you know, Alan the Bus or whatever, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Amy the Post. Yeah, yeah. And that still that still happens on Iona. So Gordon Bruce, who works with me, yeah. when he came to the island, he was the postman. That was the first job he had, and he's still known as Gordon the Post. Um, so there is. There's a footprint there that sometimes isn't satisfyingly deep enough for me as a Gaelic learner. Yes. But it's deep enough that it still impacts on even um, the language of people who don't have a familial connection to Gaelic or to this particular landscape. So that's really special. Yeah. So Greenock, obviously born in the Rankin Memorial then? I was. Likewise, Rankin Memorial posse <laughs> in the house. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny. Uh, that's that's you and me and Davy. Oh really? Of course, because a lot of the sailors during the war and a lot of the women coming out of the babies passed through Greenock yes. um, and passed through my grandparents' house. Um, babies sailing out through yes, the Clyde. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. Oh wow. And what was it like growing up in Greenock? Because around the time you're growing up, it's the time of only a boys game and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? Greenock was, well, my one of my strongest memories about growing up in Greenock is the presence of the military yes. on the Holy Loch yeah. and on the Clyde. Yep. That's a very, um, very strong visual memory. Yeah. And we, we lived in the West End of the town. And so, so basically in, I suppose, the mid-70s, you still the shipyards. Yes. So still driving yeah. that bit of road from Greenock through Port Glasgow. Where when the yards came like, out, yeah. you, you couldn't move. The, nope. the, the street was blocked. Yeah. The motorway, such as it was, the dual carriageway was blocked. Yeah. So things like that I remember really vividly, obviously. Can you, can you describe that for us? Because I remember that as a child as well. What what happened? The big doors opened, the double the, doors opened, the, and yeah, then... So 
I went to school for a short period of time in Kilmacombe. Oh, get you. I did. Nice. St. Columbus Preparatory right. School for Young Ladies. <laughs> so we would the bus would come come down from Kilmacombe to Greenock. And um, if it coincided, you it was the big Scots sign, the big yeah. blue Scots sign. Yeah. And it the doors opened at Ferguson's and it was just this massive volume of people. Just massive volume of people. And then it was gone, then it was dispersed, then everybody dispersed, and then the traffic started flowing again. So I can remember coming along, uh, we'd been in Glasgow or something, I must have been quite young, and I remember the double doors opening, and some piece of ship going across the road in kind of a big, big frame. And, you know, it was like, you couldn't do anything. It was just a hulk going across two, four lanes of the dual carriageway. And it was like, wow. Huge. Oh, the scale was just amazing. Yeah, immense. Absolutely immense. Um, And I remember being quite scared of that, actually. Totally, yeah. Yeah, quite, quite, quite scared of that. So I think... um, There was a brutality to the metal. Mm. There wasn't... It seemed already to be rusted. Mm. Which, you know, for a new ship, surely a new ship should be saying, but here was this great mm-hmm. rusty hulk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that totally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for me, the big thing about Greenock was, uh, was it Ripping Records? The record shop? Uh, oh, oh um, so that's one of my other memories, is the record shop and Woolies Singles Department. Yes. And going and spending your pocket money on um, on music, totally. on singles. Yeah. Vinyl. And you were allowed to... Go into town, get being old enough to go into town with your friends go to do that. Go for a go for a go to Aldo's because, oh. of course, Greenock had a really strong Italian presence because right. following the Second World War, a lot of um, immigrants into Scotland, obviously the West Coast and Glasgow and Greenock. So lots of gorgeous Italian ice cream shops in Greenock, and and Largs and Guruk and all down the Clyde. So. Yes, Italian coffee and ice cream and uh, spend your money on what was left on the latest single. I can remember queuing outside the record shop as well for tickets to go and see Blur and Danoon when oh they gosh. came in 96, 95. Okay. I was 16, 17, something like that. And uh, yeah, I remember the, the being there with your pals to queue up for mm-hmm. it. And, uh, yeah, oh, it's something else. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the presence of the American Navy there as well. How did that manifest itself? Was it the, the physical fact that there was nuclear submarines coming in and yes. out? Yes, yes. We could see the Clyde really clearly from our house and um, it was it was the submarines, it was the presence of the submarines. If there was a naval exercise, then there would be warships as well. Yes. Dunoon was another country and the Holy Loch and you could see that. So there was this like gateway, yeah. you know, from the Clyde, yeah. and that was another world, and it was perhaps seen as quite um, risky. <laughs> because, really? Oh yeah, because you know you were told that there were American soldiers, yeah. and so therefore, there, if you know where there was hordes of men, there were yeah. women of the night, there was yes. illicit, well, you know, were. substances, yes. you know, and that that yeah. was what we were told was that was a trade that ran between Greenock and wow. and the naval base was. Um, yeah, drugs and drugs and wild women, basically. Greenock shipped that out for for the American uh, naval base R and R. Yeah. So um, it seemed always, I don't know, not glamorous at all, but <laughs> like like another world, yes. you know, like a bit. You so you had this slightly well, you had this very kind of sinister military presence, yes. and then you had this like American 
you know, and it, exactly, you know, but, but, but you know, you know, funny. as a child in the seventies, uh-huh. your only knowledge of America was basically through television. Starsky and Hutch. And Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, Cannon. Who loves your baby? Egg, all of that. Loves your baby. Yeah, egg, all of that, you know. So, um, yeah. gosh, that's an interesting question. I probably haven't talked about this for years and years, apart from with my sister, and also at that time. By this point, I'm maybe in first year or second year, and I joined. Inverclyde Junior CND. Fantastic. And my sister and I, and, and they were still showing that film, Duck and Dive or oh, whatever it was, yeah. that was Thingamay and Survive. I can't yeah. remember the proper title. The the ancient film from the 50s, public information film about what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. Yeah. Um, terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. And my sister and I, my middle sister and I were... Sp- at school together and we had a plan where we would meet how quickly could we get home we timed it where was it that you'd meet so we would meet at the um the bottom corner of the school playground uh-huh. the green academy playground at the corner of madeira street and newark street uh-huh. and then we would tank it back yes. to our house in newark street hopefully have time to save our mother or grab our mother and the cats the dog and then get into the basement of the house that was the plan you'd be fine for 20 minutes maybe. Uh, (laughs) Completely annihilated within seconds of the warning, you know, going off, I think. You know, realistically, I'm quite sure the Holy Lock and Greenock were massive targets. Still are. Yeah. Interestingly, for me, in terms of my individual memory and collective memory, this didn't really come back up to the surface for me until a couple of years ago when Taikersheva invited me to put a proposal in for a an exhibition um, for some research and and, uh, an exhibition called The Lie of the Land. Okay. Looking at the military presence in the Hebrides and the dependency that's grown around that in terms of they're a massive employer. Yes, they are. And very visually present as well. Yes. So that was when I really started. I so wanted to do the project and I realised that part of the the desire to explore it more deeply was connected to these very strong visual memories from childhood from childhood and growing up with that background fear and also that that somehow with the american base being there they were the they were protecting us in some way also you know it was that alliance between the cold war exactly you know we were we were working fighting against the common enemy so I grew up in Dunoon. So um, I, I was born in Greenock, but my family are, were in Dunoon, uh, still are. And it's interesting you say American theme park. That's that is um, fascinating because it was it was just the Americans that we were exposed to were families, and so a lot of my friends growing up were American kids, yeah. and it was great. It was really good. They had the most amazing snacks. Sweets? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Doritos. Uh-huh. I mean, before Doritos existed, uh-huh. we had Doritos, uh-huh. or access to Doritos, uh-huh. Kool-Aid, yeah. all these things, and yes. so the most exciting thing was to be invited to an American kid's birthday party, uh-huh. because you get Kool-Aid, and you get Oreos, and Oreos you get this. and yeah, great chewing gum and bubblegum, oh. flavoured chewing gum and bubblegum. The grape flavoured stuff uh-huh. that you just couldn't get, and then no. Big Red, and things uh-huh. like that. So the, it's really interesting, that sort of that ide- that American commercial identity, mm-hmm. that the soft mm-hmm. side of that was there, and so I've always had a great sympathy for American things as well, and just sort of friend- friendship. But yes, also being aware that th- having seen Hunt for Red October and things like that, that's <laughs> part of that was filmed just out past an Ellen mm-hmm. or something like that. So um, very conscious of that, and 
I remember having a radio set as a kid that my uncle had given me in West Bride. He'd given this to me. Oh, fantastic. And I, I was playing about with it and I just couldn't get it tuned. So I took it apart, took the radio apart, and then I started to tune into other bits and bobs. And I picked up coded frequencies and broken frequencies. And I was like, oh, and I'd, I'd broadcast onto them. And then I'd listen as, in case a car came along the street. And a car would have past the window. And so there's so that. you had that element of intrigue and mystery. and Totally. I was reading a lot of um, uh, John Gardner, James Bond novels at that uh-huh, point. So, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. so yeah, that, that's a... These are strong identities because Greenock was a hard town as well. It did, it, without a doubt. I mean, there there was um, yeah. a lot of poverty, and then yeah. as as obviously the yards systematically closed down, yeah. there was a lot of obviously long term unemployment, and you're still yeah. seeing that. You're still seeing third generation. The legacy of that still. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Um, yeah, it's hard. Hard, hard town, but a great place as well at the same time. A lot of really yes, I mean, huge, a, a huge um, community spirit. I yeah, think, cool. um, which was based around the yards and and yeah. that the, the solidity of of um, regular regular employment yeah. and the rhythm that that gave life. So the yards gave structure and rhythm, and pride. Yes. Um, yeah. Employment. Yeah. You know, social life. My very, very first boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Worked in the yard. He was older than me, so it was all a bit. Uh, my mum didn't approve at all. But one of our first dates was to the Dockers Club in Greenock. What was that like in Port Glasgow? So that was that was a real eye opener for because I was from the West End, and I, you know, I, I, it was a it was a total education yeah. for me. So so now I I understand it a lot more because I'm part of a small community here yes. and you manage your own social events you do, yeah. and you muck in and you pitch in and it, everything revolves around one building that that encompasses everything. Uh, every event that the the community has Bugs to to funerals exactly to exactly so yeah. yeah so it was an eye opener to me in the sense that I hadn't been in that kind of environment before I hadn't been in in an environment where Part of the motivation of to be there was also cheap alcohol. Yes, so that was the yeah. reason my boyfriend... Yeah. I mean, apart from the fact that he was a docker... Exactly, yeah. it was Friday night yeah. or Thursday night. The wages were always on a Thursday night. So I was asked, what would I like to drink? And I said, I'd like a glass of wine, please. I'd like, I'd like a glass of wine, please. <laughs> and the barman said to me, darker, clear. So... Amazing. Darker clear. So El Dorado. Amazing. And and they were lined. So the old tenants, metal tenants trays, yeah, and yeah. the dram glasses that were curved and had a flat stem, uh-huh. they were just piled up, stacked up, like like cards, like a house of cards. Yes. So trays and um yeah a tray. Yeah. You know, however many fifty glasses yeah. of of clear LD, fifty glasses of dark LD, El Dorado, um, sandwiched between tenants trays. So that that was that was at one side, and it was like a kitchen servery, yeah. you know. And then it was there was music at one end, formica tabletops Fantastic. and plastic chairs, and people having a good time. People having a good time, laughing, socialising, sorting out the social politics, ah. sorting out the national politics, yeah. dancing, fighting, yeah. drinking. A great night out. A great night out. <laughs> <laughs> great night out. Oh, that's brilliant. So. Um, and did you feel welcomed? Oh yes, yes, yes. I mean, I felt a bit overwhelmed. I mean, I was only mm. seventeen, yeah. so I shouldn't really have been having dark or clear. Um, For Greenock, seventeen, I'm sure at that time was probably quite, quite late to start your yeah. your your, your uh, rite of passage through alcohol. Yeah. So one of the things that that boyfriend always said was the great thing about the yards was everybody from school could get a job. 
even if their job was just sweeping up uh uh-huh, the hudder on ah, like, yeah, yeah. you know whatever it was it we'll wait for a long stance uh-huh. right. <laughs> yeah there was there was space for everybody McDonald's uh, in Iona. Uh, what took the, your McDonald's to Greenock? So my grandfather was the eldest of the family. Um, I think that he might have had six or seven brothers and sisters. Gosh. His father died quite young. So at that point, they may not still have had the post office right. or the Argyle Hotel. Apparently, my great-grandfather was a poor businessman. David Kay will be able to tell you more about this because he didn't like to deal in hard currency and he was quite soft-natured. So you can't really run a post office on chickens and no, Mm. yes, you can have a book of first-class stamps and yes, of course, I'll just have a chicken, that'll be fine. Or I'll get a side of lamb. Or I'll yeah. get whatever the next time you're coming back from Glasgow. So That's really interesting. That's barter versus mm-hmm, commerce. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a a challenge around that. I don't think he was a very good businessman. Right. Sadly, my grandfather died before I was born. So I never got to ask these questions. And that's what my mum always said that she was told. So Papa was... 18 when his dad died he was the head of the family right. so he had to go and yeah. earn some money so he joined the customs and he became a customs officer uh, in Greenock yeah. he met his wife to be who was from Pennycook and she was the daughter of Robertson's the bagpipe makers in Edinburgh Gosh. so she played the chanter oh. And she was a nanny. So this was the Victorian era, end of the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. She was a, a Victorian nanny uh-huh. to Blackie's the Publishers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who lived in the Hill House in Hillsborough, yeah. I think. Yeah. She and Papa met, fell in love. Papa was a bit older than her, I think. Um, I think he went on his first date with his collie dog. He took his collie from Iona. I went on his first date with the collie. With and... your granny, not the collie itself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got a shiny coat. Yes, and, uh, yes, yes. Uh, your teeth nice, look very nice healthy. Hair, <laughs> nice um, and they married. And you know what? I think they were quite aspirational. And I don't know whether a bit of money came from the bagpipe com- firm. Very possibly, yeah. Um, but they built their own house. Yeah. Um, in in Road in Greenock. It's still called Iona to this day. That was where my mum was born. She was born and brought up in Greenock. And they had Primrose Cottage in the White House in the village street. So the White House had, had been the post office. Okay. And they were joined to the Duke of... I've still got the old Duke of Argyle leases, handwritten beautiful leases for both the properties. Wow. And Papa wanted to split the properties and keep the White House in the family right. and pass the, the uh, Primrose Cottage on to another side of the family. Anyway, um, the Duke of Argyle wouldn't allow the lease to be separated. So, unfortunately, in the 1950s, the house is passed sideways, a bit old-fashioned. Maybe they thought, well, he wasn't (laughs) going to pass them on to his daughters. And they passed sideways to his cousin. So, still in the McDonald family. And is it still in that side of the family today? Yes, it is. It is. It is, which is nice. That's how my immediate family 
the Iona side settled um, in Greenock. Other members of the family went to South Africa, Canada. The Celtic diaspora. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very typical of that time. Yeah, so much. And are you still in contact with the Canadian cousins? And... No, not so much. Not so much. That generation of letter writing and, and correspondence yeah. really died out. I think I do blame it wholeheartedly on my parents' generation yes. and, and her, her. They didn't. There wasn't enough communication, regular communication, for these people to be completely alive Ease for of us. Communication, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. So they were a bit ephemeral. Yeah, totally. They weren't solid people because we we'd never met them. And it's before the low cost international phone calls mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Oh no, there'll be no phoning. Aye. No yeah. surface mail. For us, we had um, family in Australia and we had family in Canada, and so the Canadian cousins for us were very much. Because it was more sort of one generation below uh-huh. what you took, so it was my mum's cousins. And so they, they would keep in contact. And dad, being in the merchant navy, mum would oh, go with okay. them and they'd occasionally get to see them yeah. in person. And they would try and come back when they could. Uh, mm. So there was this kind of magical other that yes. we were conscious of, but it was yes. in the mist somewhere yes. else. Yes. And there's one great auntie, Auntie Nancy, it was my grandfather's sister uh, in Australia, in some extraordinary sounding place. And I spoke to her on the phone once, and it's still a very cherished memory of that. There was a bit of Wester Ross mm-hmm. in Australia, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. part of me. Mm-hmm. And it was, but it's gone now. And I, I, I just the loss of that is, I don't know. I think that I think part of that gives wonder lost. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'd, I'd agree with that. A curiosity, the sense of the other, and. Yes. Someone's been there before. Yeah. Okay, so it's a bit safe. Mm. Although I'm still to make it to Australia itself. But yeah. No, I've never been to Australia. Yeah. I do remember my aunt went to Canada, probably in the mid-70s, early 70s. Yeah. And I remember to visit the Canadian yeah. uh, McDonald's. And I, But of course, as children, we were just fascinated by what she brought us back as totally. gifts. Yeah. We weren't yeah. callous, but we were kids. No, we weren't really like. interested yeah. in... Auntie Nan and you know exactly (laughs) Uh, can I have that gorgeous belt you know with the First Nations you know beadwork on it that's fabulous thank you very much and and the sweeties oh maple syrup was up yes with a big red flag uh, red red leaf on it so that brings us into art then so what when when you're an artist by trade Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when did that desire to make art and see the world as an artist when did when are you conscious of that starting at any point I think it was probably always there. It was probably always there in the family as well. So my my eldest sister went to art school. Ah, cool. Obviously, I took art as a subject um, right through to to the end of end of my my school education. Yeah, I was always drawing. Always, always drawing. Drew a lot of maps, interestingly, things like that. Drew drew imaginary lands. Drew horses. Had a total passion for horses, as lots of wee girls did. And also, there was occasional visits by my mum's cousin, Ian McCormick, who's an Iona McCormick. Right. And he had followed on the tradition of the Riches. He'd, he'd kind of informally apprenticed with the Riches as yes. a boy. I've read about him. Yeah. yeah. So Ian, when I, well, we called him Uncle Ian. When, when he came to visit, you know, by the point that I was in art school... He always wanted to know what projects was I working on, yeah. what was I doing, and yeah. he was very gently enthusiastic and encouraging. So he was actually quite a strong influence, I would say, looking back, although I didn't know at the time. He was very... Yeah. We, uh, we, whereas I, I think my my dad 
was a was a merchant banker, like the old the old fashioned word for investment banking, and he lived in London mainly. And um, he was he was deeply disappointed that I went to art school. That was not, you know, really. Has, I, has I, he so, seen all that you've achieved since? Um, not no, he didn't. Unfortunately, live to see all of it. I think I think towards. You know, towards the end of his life, he, he would see the pattern. He acknowledged. I think he. What I think the point where it changed for him was when I set up a business. Ah, all right. Yes, that makes sense. Then he could communicate. Then we were speaking the same language. Yes. You know. So yeah. then it was great. You know, it was. I can help you with your books. I can show you how to do a double entry ledger. I yeah. Can, you know. So then, I, perhaps he felt that there was a, more of a role for him. On that note, then, how did your mum feel about your, your craft? And has she seen... She was very, you... very supportive. She, she was really supportive, um, you know, to the extent where my bedroom would become... My bedroom was, became a kind of studio as well as, you know, having the studio at, at, at the art school. That's brilliant. So she, she, was really, she was really supportive, always. I've been very lucky with my parents. They've never once questioned that, like, uh, can I go to Paris to study mine? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not get a job, son. Get get an invisible box, son. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's yes. that's tremendous. Yeah, so lucky, so so mm, lucky. Mm. So Ian McCormick, there you mentioned was apprenticed to the Riches. Mm-hmm. Before we come to talk about mm-hmm. your own craft, mm-hmm. is it worth identifying who were the Riches and what did they do? So Alexander and Euphemia Ritchie lived in Iona from the late eighteen hundreds to nineteen forty one. Yeah. And they died within a few days of each other. Really? Um, Alex Ritchie's family came from Tobermory, I think, originally. You can correct me if I've got any of this wrong. And Euphemia's family, I think, were from... Ardrishigui. Yes, that's right. Shuna? Shuna? Is it it Shuna, right? I think there was a connection with Shuna. Right. They were quite outstanding individuals of their time. So they were really key figures in the Scottish arts and crafts movement, which sat within the wider arts and crafts movement. Mm -hmm. Um, William Morris and um, which was happening um, on the mainland they both had a passion for what they would have called Celtic art not Celtic art but Celtic art Uh, they both attended classes um, at the art school in Glasgow in fact I'm pretty sure Euphemia was in the department of embroidered and woven textiles at, at Glasgow around the same time as Jessie Newbery and the Glasgow Girls. Ah, right. So she would have been part of all of all of that. I'm sure Mary, Mary MacArthur has spoken to me about this. So Alex Ritchie was the guide to the Abbey Ruins at one, at one yes. time, as was my great-grandfather. Uh-huh. There is a story that when the cathedral trustees were first looking at the the abbey and or the cathedral as we were always brought up calling it um ruins and the rebuilding of it that Kepi and Son, the architecture firm that Macintosh had worked for, were um. invited to come and look round the site and that it would have been so so there's a, oh. a, a thought did Richie meet uh Rennie Macintosh? Did Richie show wow. the Kepi's the the, the Kepi firm round? I'm pretty sure there is Evidence. I mean, you need to check it with Manny MacArthur that Charles wow. Rennie Macintosh was working for Capies at that time and could have been in that party that visited the island and that Richie would have. And what a conversation that might might have been. Um, There's a new play for me. Thank you oh, very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they shared their passion. So they they went away. They honed their skills. They they um, Euphemia did embroidery and leather work. Yeah. Um, Richie had been a merchant seaman. He mm-hmm. was injured out of the merchant navy, and right. he 
I think had done had done wood carving stuff at sea, and uh, so he continued that craftsmanship and worked with um, brass repoussé and silverware, and wasn't just jewellery, yeah, large scale pieces as well, and um, they passed their skills on to local people. Yeah. So I still have a a, a tooled bag which my mum's cousin made for my my mother's twenty first, and she learned Annie had learned that from Yuffie. yes from what from from this kind of co- almost like a cooperative they set like was it an informal cooperative I don't know where people worked in their houses and learned these skills, and then the Richies also sold some of that work in their right. shop in the nunnery, they also outsourced a lot of work to Lawson's in Glasgow and they used the same process that we still use here they used a casting company in Birmingham to to cast the pieces because eventually they did do beautiful one-off pieces of silverware and silver jewellery but but also the tourist demand the volume of work they had to create meant that they had to look at um, casting technology to to produce the volume of pieces that um, the tourists were demanding mass reproduction Yeah, yeah What is it about their work that's special, though? So it's that's that's one thing. So the art, the the, the the infrastructure to do something is one thing. But what is the essence of what makes their work important? Why do you think it it still has a legacy to this day? It still has a tremendous legacy and appeal to people of of all age groups, and that's what fascinates me. So we have a range of we have a range of the the original Ritchie designs out there, which, we, which we've, we're which we reproducing. And we also have worked by some of the best Scottish contemporary designers. And it's still the Ritchie work yeah. that outsells to, to all age groups. Why does it resonate so much, do you think? It's, it's the context. It's absolutely the context. It's to do with the context in which people see the jewellery. Yes. And it's to do... I think with an exchange which is connected to a sense of place yes. and a desire to maintain that connection to place when they're no longer here. So it's yeah. got to do with the impact of Iona, yeah. its history, yeah. its atmosphere, its cultural yeah. traditions. And the beauty of the designs, I think the designs are... And this yeah. this might sound, I don't mean it in a derogatory way at all. But they're quite, they're crude and simple. They are what they are. Yes. They're no, it's Sincere. not ex- exactly. It's not highly, highly, highly refined. It's very pure. Yeah. And a lot of their work was was more refined. And the, you know, they're beautiful far screen pieces. Yeah. They're, yeah. you know, they're the the trophy for the mod, the the shield for the mod. Lots of work that they did was was more refined than the jewellery, actually. It's really interesting. There were two women in the other day and one of them was really interested in buying a piece of jewellery and the other woman said, she asked her friend for advice and her friend said, I don't care, buy what you want. Jewellery is irrelevant. And I said, thanks very much. You've just rubbished 20 years of my life. And, And I laughed. Then her friend and I had a conversation about why did she want to buy this piece and why was it important for her? Yes. And her friend said the visit was at a significant point in her life. She'd always wanted to come to Iona. Yes. It was a connection to place and experience. Yes. So that's what and she was self. buying. And she, self. A connection to the self. It's a yeah. reflection of the self as yeah. well. So that's what she was that's what she yeah. was buying. That was the exchange that I was making with her. Yeah. The work's really timeless. 
it is really timeless, Alistair, and it's... And the designs, it's important to say about the designs themselves. They didn't necessarily create all the designs themselves, did they? The majority of the work is drawn from the carvings on the freestanding crosses, um, the medieval stone carvings in the um, Abbey Cloisters, and also... The Book of Kells, obviously. Yeah, illustrated here. Yes, on yes, that. yes. Started by Ion amongst the eighth century, so they they were really they were living in their landscape with their eyes fully open, and they were their creativity was ignited. They were whistling a tune called Iona. Yes, yes, but, but you know, and they, they they they. I mean, Richie Richie wrote a book that invited scholars to contribute to. Yeah. I mean, beautiful, you know, hand drawn maps, Gallic place names. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's a massive legacy. It's a massive legacy, and also what they did was they 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 brought the Hebrides into that arts and crafts movement that was happening in the in on the mainland and globally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's a heritage that has been kind of quite un, un, unsung, yeah. you know, and and has been fairly quiet up until recent years. And of course, there's now recognition of it in the V&A and Dundee. And exactly. first time I came across the Riches was about three or four years ago. The first time I was physically conscious of them was when the phone rang um, was at the National Museum of no don't worry National Museum of Scotland's uh-huh. uh, Celtic exhibition yes yeah fabulous so you go through from right these kind of bog things that were found in the bogs uh, of you know uh, in Romania and all this uh-huh. sort of stuff uh-huh. all the way through and you see all the typical oh yeah there's something typically Celtic and it ends with Richie's gift shop and there, right from the dawn of our European connection, right, right back at the dawn of who we are, all the way through, come weaves this, these threads that come together into these silver designs that we then put on our, you know, around our throats. It's phenomenal. It's a, it's a tremendous legacy. It's a tremendous cultural legacy. Yeah. I've got a beautiful photograph of, of, of Alex and Euphemia standing outside Iona Celtic Art. Mm-hmm. In I think it was was it 1900 or 1901 that they opened it in the grounds of the nunnery, and they said on little more than hope, yeah. that was what they opened it on. So they weren't they weren't very humble. Exactly, exactly. It wasn't they weren't business entrepreneurs. No. You know, thankfully they didn't have your great grandfather's business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Other otherwise there wouldn't have been a legacy to pass on. Exactly. How many pieces of silver for how many uh, eggs? Yeah. Although I have done a bit of that. Of course. <laughs> Of you and know. That's, well, that's the life of an artist, and that so that draws us into. You've managed. To, so we're sitting here in your office in Ustana. What does Ustana mean? It's an old, uh, actually Irish Gaelic word for the bards. Fantastic uh, for the poets. And then I think it, it it morphed into contemporary Gaelic to mean anybody from the arts and crafts background, from music, literature, arts, crafts. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. So it's kind of pe- people of the arts, the crafts. Can you say a little bit about what this place is and how your how your craft happened to be? How, were you did you start off from a shed like? Yes, like yes. So so, um, I trained at Glasgow School of Art. I didn't do jewellery. I came to Iona in nineteen ninety seven with mm-hmm. the view of setting up a small studio in the house to concentrate on my own art practice. I still have an active studio practice as a visual artist. When Ian McCormick heard I was moving to Iona. He was very elderly by that point and his immediate family weren't going to take the jewellery tr- tradition forward. He he was right. the only person at that point that was really continuing, apart from Art Pewter, who had accessed some of the designs as well. So, th- so Ian wanted to pass it on. He really wanted to pass it on. He'd been approached by business people, various individual business people who wanted to continue with the Ritchie work 
And Ian really wanted it to go back to Iona. Fantastic. So when he heard I was moving back to the island, he said, that's tremendous. I I want to take you to my workshop, which was in the <laughs> cellar of his house in Paisley. Take the Ritchie Masters, have new moulds made, take any of the studio uh, workshop equipment. The fact that I had never done jewellery in my life didn't seem to. He said, it's fine. You'll learn how to do it. The pieces are cast. It's amazing. You, you get the hallmark. You may get a maker's mark. Um, you register with the hall with the ASI office in Edinburgh. You hand finish all. You learn how to solder. I moved into a cottage in the village street, which was known as the Weaver's House, um, or House of the Weaver, town of Birch. Mm-hmm. In the room that had always been a traditional weaving room, my grandfather's cousin Willie Call was the last weaver. Willie McDonald, he was known as Willie Call because his father was called McDonald. So Willie Call was the last traditional weaver on the island and I made a studio in the room that had been the weaving room in the house. So originally what I was going to do was just concentrate on my own art practice. Um, however, when Ian gifted all of this amazing legacy, legacy yeah. I thought, okay, the onus is on me now. This is kind of someone else is steering the, sh- the ship now a wee bit. However, I just have to go with this. So... Um, rapid learning curve and basic silversmithing skills made a little workbench in the studio did the jewellery on the spot had loads of support and help for, from Eleanor McDougall went to yes. night classes with Eleanor she was fantastic she the patience to show me how to solder several times I'd been doing massive bits of art um, prior to moving to Iona but then I was in this tiny wee studio so I had to downscale my own work quite substantially but predominantly was was selling the Richie, the Richie Silver, yeah. And it it was a total gift because, of course, it was an income. Yeah. It was yeah. bread and butter. It was an income. So I ran the business for 10 years out of the front room of my house. And in 2003, the National Trust um, agreed to the old farmsteadings here at the St. Columba. The National Trust, who are the landowners? Yes, National Trust for Scotland, yeah. who are the, who are who own the island, um, who ke- take care of the island, Cute, yeah. which Cute. is in the ownership of the, the people of Scotland, but on behalf of the people of Scotland. Anyway, so in partnership with the National Trust for Scotland, I redeveloped the buildings here. In the spirit of the riches, I created so I created a dedicated art studio for myself. I created a silversmithing workshop and a display area for my business. And also, in the spirit of the riches, created space for a crafts cooperative on the island. Um, so it was really important to me that's fantastic. that I paid it forward. Yeah. And that's where we are today. So the building's opened in 2006 and 13 years later, we're thriving. We're all still here. And the craft cooperative are working well as well. They are. Yeah, yeah, working fantastically well. The range of, you know, from stained glass to to woven textiles, um, photography, cards, a real range of different products. So So this threads us through the the theme running through everything we've talked about, this legacy of of culture and identity and family takes us to Iona. Mm -hmm. What is it about Iona? Why... Why Iona? Why do people come here? Why do we? Why does someone want someone from Birkenhead mm. who's had polio mm. in childhood? So I, I've got to go to Iona. I have to get something of Iona. What is it about here that's magical that that works? I think it's 
I think it's obviously different for everybody, but it's the same for everybody in a strange way, Alistair. And my sister has a theory, and I, I agree with this as well, is that it's to do with the it's to do with the age of the the rocks. Ah, I think it's so very interesting. It's something geological. Yeah, it comes from it's like deep time. A long it's yeah it's the start of geological time. Yeah, deep deep time, and I actually think although there's lots grafted on top, so Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. we've got lots of pre-Christian pagans were here before that. Exactly. So we we've still got a Bronze Age cairn outside this window mm-hmm. here. There there would have been Neolithic monuments. We we don't know what was destroyed yeah. in in the Victorian time. So I think it's a connection to deep time that people experience w- without being conscious of that. It's like the reptilian part of the brain is connecting somewhere to this landscape, and it's it just comes right up through your feet, it comes right up through the ground, and it's tangible. I think it's also it's it's the scale of the island. It's very intimate. Magic, yeah. It's manageable. But it's very different. The north is very different from the south. Geologically, it's very different. You feel that. Totally, it's, yeah. it's you know, it's gentler in the north. It's wilder and more rugged down the southwest. Yeah. So, so are the cattle. Yeah. It's a human scale. It's a human scale, but it's awesome as well. It's awe-inspiring. It's majestic. But it's manageable on a human level. You go up the knee in 10 minutes and you can see Jura. And exactly. You, and then, then you understand why Iona was at the centre. Totally. It's the highway. Yeah. You, Completely. Yeah. Just surrounded by a circle of island. You're right in the middle of it. It's the, the big roundabout in the middle of the... It's a halo. The seascape. It is. It is. Not good for the Christian side yeah. of things. <laughs> well, um, there's so much more I want to ask you as well in terms of, you know, about the community. But I think let's do that another day. Yeah, sure. sure. If that's okay to talk sure, again. No, another no, day. No, Thank you so much. No, no, not at all. Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vary. It was great to spend time with you. I look forward to catching up again soon. And thank you too to Fiona, who was working in the shop while we chatted. Ustana, Vary's shop is really something. It's well worth your time and paying it a visit if you're over in Iona. You can also find them on the web as well. I've put a link onto the webpage. I was also chuffed to bits to see my mate Joe Kasky's work in there as well. Joe, a paper artist, makes beautiful handmade books and out of maps, amongst many other things. Have a look at her website too if you like. There's a link on that on the webpage as well. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So, if you feel like it, and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee, or even the price of a copy of The Celestine Prophecy, which you thought you'd lost, but then found, then lost again, and found out in the shed propping up that router you got for Christmas two years ago through the website. You'll see a Donate tab there, where you can donate if you so wished. I've also got a Patreon page for donations, which you can find under my name, Alistair Satchel. If you want to contribute to that, you're very welcome. I'm trying to figure out pledge packages that I can offer you there that, to make it more appealing. I can't really hold back any of the content from the main podcasts. So that wouldn't be fair to the speakers who are giving me their time for free. I'll see if I can figure out something appealing for you. But don't worry if you can't donate or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened than you didn't. And if you want to sponsor any of the episodes to come as a business, please feel free to drop me a line. Also, to help me grow the podcast, if you want to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen, I'd be most grateful. Thank you to those of you that have. I really, really appreciate it. It's brilliant. Thank you. And thank you also to those who reach out to say hello. 
It's always wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. As ever, the webpage, whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Kuyu, kuyu. Thank you for listening. Wherever you may be, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. More than time. Shenakate.